Heavenly Father, may you remind us that you really are good. You take chaos and you create order. You take dysfunction and purposelessness and you create meaning and direction and beautiful identity and relationship. And in a world that is just so torn apart, um, we confess. We need you. We need people that follow hard after you, that are committed ultimately to you in your way, more than to our own personal ideals and hopes. So I pray that your spirit, um, which is really the only thing that we can depend upon, I pray that your spirit would do its work in and through all of your people all over the world. Um, This world is worth rescuing from the terrors and the tragedies and the corruption and the injustice. And I desperately pray for your kingdom to be built here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray in your name. And everybody who agreed said, Amen. Amen. For those of you who are just joining us, we're in the middle of a series entitled So, which is an inquiry into Christian beliefs. Um, the first two talks were, why are we here? What are we doing here? Pro- trying to provide, as best as we can, a Christian response, a Jesus way response to that answer, to that question. The second week, we tackled what is wrong with the world, and we talked about sin and missing the mark. And today, I'd like to tackle, why did Jesus have to die? And as it was last week, much of what we may discuss might hinge upon the previous two weeks. So I'm going to encourage you to check those out if you haven't through the podcast. Well, I have wrestled with this talk over and over again, just very much like I did last talk, given the context that we seem to find ourselves in. And I'm going to provide for you, I think, a very unconventional answer to this. The question of Jesus' death and his sacrifice, his crucifixion, is a huge one. Thousands and thousands of pages have been written on this. So it's going to be really difficult for me to sum up. So I'm going to try to take an interesting angle on it today is what I'm going to do. Next week, Omer is going to be sharing what did Jesus' death mean? And there may be some overlap between those two particular talks. He and I haven't coordinated exactly. We have some general ideas. Um, But I think that's important for us to recognize that what we're about to talk about is huge. It is the central piece of Christian identity, The idea that a person named Jesus, that we believe is God himself in the flesh, died. And so this is going to be really, really critical and really important for us to wrestle with and revisit once again. Now, some of you might have pat answers again. Why did Jesus have to die? Well, for our sins so that we can go to heaven when we die. And of course, as you have all been around Spark for a little bit, you know that we're going to try to approach this with a refreshed sense of vision. Try to think about this anew. Uh, do so through the lens of story, narrative, Uh, do so through the lens of contemporary culture. What the world is going on today? And try to put those two together. And I have a very simple response for you, and I hope it is sensical. I hope it makes sense to you. At the very least, it'll be easy for you to take away next time somebody asks you, so what is this thing about Jesus having to die on the cross? Here's my answer, and this is the entire sermon in two words. He didn't. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't have to. Okay? Thanks for coming. We'll see you on Wednesday for tacos. (laughs) Let me see if I can flesh this out for you a little bit more. This is a little bit unconventional. Again, I wrestled with this. For those of us who are in this uh, job of doing our best to try to share thoughts, reflections, ideas, 
uh, based upon a text that has been gone over billions and billions of times. It is one of those daunting tasks that I both relish, so feel the privilege, but I also feel this heavy weight and burden and responsibility. Am I really getting this right? So I will leave it to my uh, co-pastors and friends and teachers and my congregation to tell me where I'm wrong, okay? So here's my best shot at this. And rather than trying to take a theological lens, although we're going to do some of the theology, I just kind of like to take a, take a step back from all of that and ask the question again, well, why, why? I mean, there could have been all sorts of different ways to do this. And I really think that one potential answer to this question is he didn't have to. And that is what is most profound about this sacrifice, that he didn't have to. One particular perspective of this he didn't have to comes from actually the very end of the story. For those of you who know, he's about to be betrayed. He's in the garden and he's praying. And Judas has brought a whole bunch of Roman soldiers and guards to come arrest him to have him be tried and ultimately sent to death. Now, Peter, one of his disciples, one of the followers of Jesus, one of the most boisterous, loud, speaks first, speaks most often, uh, he speaks up and he says, "Ah, this is not good. Uh, Jesus is supposed to be a revolutionary, and I don't want him to be taken down like this. So he grabs a sword, and he begins to strike at the offenders of Jesus. He cuts off uh, the right ear of the high priest that's standing there. And then Jesus responds with this. Put your sword back in its place, Jesus said to him, for all who draw the sword will die by the sword. And here's the, he didn't have to. Do you think I cannot call on my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? And the implication there is, hey, I don't have to do this. There's a lot of other different ways in which we could overcome. There's a whole bunch of different avenues that God has at his disposal to expose the powers, to overcome corruption, to kick out injustice, and to establish his kingdom. But there's something about the way in which the gospel writers, you know, recorded this story to say, this was a choice to go down this particular road, to go down this particular path. So much so that it became the central idea in our Christian identity and our Christian thinking. There's this battle that sometimes wages. I don't know if you ever have this battle. Which is more important, Christmas or Easter, right? Christmas or Easter. And there's this this battle that sometimes goes on. I don't know. Maybe maybe I'm just a geek and I search out these battles. I don't know. But um, there's observations that have been made that if you were to take away the birth narratives, in other words, the the birth of Jesus, the conception of Jesus, his growing up, and all of that stuff, if you were to take that completely out of our Christian thinking, you would be removing a couple chapters in the Bible. Maybe Matthew 1 and 2, maybe chapters 3, depending upon, and then definitely Luke chapter 1, chapter 2, and, and four or five chapters of the Bible would be completely gone, but that's about all you would miss. But If you were to take away the crucifixion, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus, you don't have a faith anymore. You don't have anything. And so this idea of crucifixion, this idea of death, burial, and resurrection, and and the idea of Jesus dying is deeply central to our understanding of who we are and who we are supposed to be in this world. But this is what's fascinating to me. There are, according to ancient historians... 
hundreds of different ways in which you could be killed. You already know about stoning, throwing somebody off a cliff, drowning somebody. Uh, There's all sorts of different ways in which you can kill people. In fact, if you want to be deeply disturbed, you can actually Google ancient ways that people have died and been tortured. It is absolutely horrendous what we have done to one another. And even though we say that this crucifixion is really important to us, I'm going to contend to you, my friends, I actually don't think we have really come to terms with the idea, with the thought, that the core central piece of our faith, the one that makes up pretty much the entire New Testament, the the event that is centralized, that centralizes every other aspect of our thinking, I don't think we've come to terms yet with the idea that this is a torturous execution. Have Have we really wrestled with this idea? And this was what I was wrestling with over the last week or so. Because I think about all the different ways in which people have died and the ways in which we have tortured one another. It is absolutely, I mean, it's, it's, uh, it, it's, I am speechless. I'm flabbergasted at the different ways in which we have tortured and killed one another. Many people have suggested that, you know, for you to wear a cross around your neck is like wearing an injection needle around your neck or wearing, um, you know, an electric chair around your neck. It's an execution uh, device that we have as our symbol a torturous execution as part of, you know, our faith. And some people have suggested and equated that if you want to talk about crucifixion, if you want to talk about the death of Jesus, it is very similar to the way in which we still kill people today, capital punishment. I'm going to suggest that maybe there's some nuance to that um, because, and I'm even hesitant to say it in this particular way, we attempt, I know we don't always succeed, but we attempt to make capital punishment quick, and if there's suffering or pain, there's something within us that tries to eliminate that. Just get it done with and not, you know, prolong the experience. But that's not what crucifixion is. Crucifixion is actually the opposite. Crucifixion is the idea that your suffering and your torture and your pain must go on for as long as humanly possible. And so I'm going to suggest that even though some people like to make this moral equivalency, I actually think it's a slightly different, and I'd like to explain maybe just a little bit why. First, some history. Uh, We often think that crucifixion is a Roman idea. If you take a look at ancient historians, crucifixion, um, what some people uh, call putting up on a stake or impaling, there's all sorts of different forms of this and different ways in which people have done so, uh, has actually a very, very long history. The Phoenicians have done it, the Persians have done it, the Syrians have done it, the Macedonians and the Greeks, and then, of course, the Romans are the ones who have perfected this. So when you think about crucifixion, when you think about torture, this is actually something that we, as humanity, have been doing for a very, very long time. Seneca, who writes about 40 AD, writes this, I see crosses there, not just of one kind, but made in different ways. Some have their victims with their head down to the ground. Some impale their private parts. Others stretch out their arms. I should say at the outset that there are some disturbing thoughts and images in this particular talk. Viewer and listener and parishioner discretion is advised. So this is something that people have written about, and not only Seneca, but Josephus writes about this, Herodotus writes about this, the excruciating pain that people go through. And fascinatingly enough, crucifixion isn't something that just happened thousands of years ago. Crucifixion is actually still happening today. 
this is a Burmese Dacoit um, group of people. Apparently, they did something wrong, and they are being readied for execution. And in the 19th century, a young man was actually uh, executed by crucifixion as a result of being accused of stealing. So this is something that we actually have photographs of. This is something that still happens today. A lot of people believe that crucifixion, uh, that you die because of the pain or blood loss. But again, crucifixion is there because it is supposed to extend your life, or rather extend your death as long as possible. And various medical experts have taken a look at this, and some have suggested that not only do you uh, die by blood loss, which is one possible way, depending upon what kind of torture ensued beforehand, um, but the other ways in which you would die would be dehydration, uh, asphyxiation. Uh, for those of you who want to give this a try, I've done this myself. If you try to hang yourself uh, between two bars and just let yourself go, you will feel the weight the gravity upon your diaphragm and upon your lungs, and you essentially suffocate to death. Infection, you can imagine nails in your hands and nails in your feet and all the stuff that can go along with that, or there's other causes. And the reason, uh, the other picture actually is, if you can see, this particular image does a pretty decent job. Some of the images that we have of crucifixion are up on a high hill, far, far away, and usually the crosses are way off the ground. Uh, this is uh, not very responsible with your resources. Like, why would you want to lift somebody up so far high off the ground? Crucifixion wasn't done in that particular way. It was very much done at eye level, in fact, along public streets. Uh, Josephus talks about, in fact, somebody could be barely two or three feet off the ground. It's really not that far off the ground that you would need to be in order to hang somebody in that particular way. And the other important thing is that as you would walk down the street and you're going to the store, you're buying spices and cabbages and you're just getting fabrics to make your clothes, as you were walking down the street, Romans would crucify you at street level on public places. Because the whole point of this is not just to torture and to kill people who were insurrectionists against the empire of Rome or people who did bad things. The actual point was to deter other people from trying to uprise against Rome. And then, of course, humiliation, which is a huge deterrent, humiliating the damned. So you would walk by, people would be crucified naked, and then all of those things would, um, of course, ensue. The... Some historians have suggested that a real good, and I use that word, of course, very cautiously and uh, carefully, a real good Roman crucifixion would last three to five days, and somebody would hang there for that particular length of time. If you've ever heard of the word excruciating, this is exactly where that word comes from, out of the cross. In addition to the humiliation from a Roman perspective, there's actually humiliation from a Jewish perspective as well that's also written in your Bible. In the book of Deuteronomy, in the Torah, there is a consequence for somebody who has created a, a capital offense. Um, and you know stoning is a practical way that people have uh, killed one another. But crucifixion had a very specific meaning to it. And if a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is to be put to death, and you hang him on a tree, which is which many scholars believe is an allusion to crucifixion, uh, goes on to describe what it is that you're supposed to do and concludes with the idea, for anyone hung on a tree is under God's curse. Crucifixion was a symbol, not only that you had done something wrong, but that there was humiliation put upon you, that you were being demeaned as a human being, and that you were on the outs with whatever God, whatever blessing that you were supposed to have. 
This is actually pulled into our New Testament in Acts chapter 5, where Peter, standing before the Sanhedrin, which is a Jewish judging group of people, he says, we must obey God rather than any human authority. The God of our ancestors raised up Jesus, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree, which is the exact same language of Deuteronomy. And so when Peter says, hey, all of you religious people who are condemning me, you're the ones who put him on a tree. You're the ones that caused Jesus to be cursed. It's a huge indictment pulling in that Deuteronomy theme. So we have the Romans, humiliation. We have the Jewish idea, a Hebrew idea, cursed by God, abandoned by God. In fact, Jesus says this on the cross. Does anybody remember the phrase, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then we have Hebrew history through other empires. This is Sennacherib's palace wall. Sennacherib was an ancient Assyrian uh, empire. Uh, he, he was a general, a king of the Assyrian empire. And he comes through and destroys a bunch of lands and cities. We've talked about him before. And he goes back home and describes his victory. And he actually inscribes it on his wall. We, you can go see this today if you want. It's really incredible. And you can see the impaling of the prisoners upon the wall. Part of the um, psychological warfare that would be taking place is that any captives that you take, you would impale them sometimes right through the neck, sometimes even through the groin. You would wave them around on the poles like a flag in front of the next city that you want to conquer. It's part of the psychological warfare. All of this is about humiliation. All of this is about dehumanizing. All of this is about taking people and making them as low as possible. Uh, this idea was actually carried through much later. Around 200 AD, uh, this was found, uh, I believe, in the 19th century. It's a piece of graffiti, and uh, it's called the Alex, uh, Alexamenos Graffiti. They believe it was inscribed somewhere around uh, the 3rd century, early 3rd century, so somewhere around 200s. And if you read this Greek inscription carefully, it reads... Alexamenos, I can't say that word, Alexamenos worships his God. Now take a look at the picture really quickly. You can clearly see that it's a crucifixion, and it's got a human figure there, but what is the head but the head of a donkey? The, whoever inscribed this is basically making fun of this worshiper, saying, you worship that? Don't you understand that anybody that hangs on a cross is a nobody, is humiliated, is a, has been demeaned to the lowest possible level. And so you have this gentleman with his hand raised in some sort of form of worship, and he's worshiping a mule, a donkey, an ass that has been crucified. This is a depiction of just how stupid you would be to worship somebody like this. So, this is a picture of one of the only archaeological finds that we have of a crucifixion. It's a heel bone. You can tell that the nail actually goes through the heel in this direction, not from the top. So, a lot of scholars now believe that feet were hammered to the nail from the side. When you survey this and think about what crucifixion was, again, there are other different ways to die. Why this? And why did he have to do it? I'm going to suggest to you that one of the ways in which we can think about this afresh is it's not just that Jesus died. It's actually how he died. It's actually that he took on humiliation. It was that he took on something that 
everybody knew existed. Some sort of mysterious dynamic between power and empire and lower classes of people, people that might have been in a different caste system, and people that would have been innocent. He's taking that and he's somehow putting it on display to completely upend that system. Crucifixion was not just Roman. It was imperial. It was about power. It was about humiliation. It was about establishment. And it was about law and order. The Romans said, we are establishing our peace. And here's how we're going to establish our peace. Anybody that comes against us is dead. We are going to establish peace by instituting violence against the people. And so part of the angle that I'm going to suggest we think about is that there was a full recognition, not just about the death, but about how Jesus embraced humiliation, deprecation, dehumanization as part of the story and the narrative that he was telling in his life. And here's what I think happens, and we have a little bit of a clue in the book of Colossians. This is actually the city of Colossae. It's been It's not been excavated. You can go there and stand on the mound and say, I've been to Colossae, and take your picture, and there you go. In the book of Colossians, the author seems to suggest that this crucifixion of Jesus is doing something really radical and upending systems and powers that everybody thinks is how it is supposed to be. And I love, I absolutely love what's going on here because I think this is This is going to be my proposition to you, what I think is the crux of the issue, pun intended, that just came out. (laughs) And when you were dead in trespasses, remember uh, the talk that we talked about um, with Pesha and Chata last week, the trespasses, the idea that you have uh, completely lost faithfulness and trust with another person. When you were dead in trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made... Here's a textual variant. Some texts say you, some say us. We're not quite sure exactly which one. God made you or us alive together with him when he forgave us all of our trespasses. Erasing the record that stood against us with its legal demands. And he takes all of that and he set it aside and he nailed it to the cross. So whatever is going on, Whatever dynamic is happening in spiritual places about the loss of relationship, the trespasses that we've had, the sin, the fallen shortness, all of that is going to the cross. But what happens when it gets there? And this I cannot get over. I've been reading this over and over and over, just sitting with it, and I hope you get to sit with it as well. Verse 15 is amazing. He, Jesus disarmed the rulers and the authorities and made a public example of them, triumphing over them in it. Now, now catch this for a second. First of all, the word disarmed there literally means stripped. And then this phrase that I've underlined made a public example of them, the rulers and the authorities. Now, notice what the author is doing here. What is crucifixion supposed to do? Crucifixion is supposed to strip you and make a public example of you 
given all that history that we just went through, right? You're the one being crucified, which means you are the one who's been stripped. You're the one who's been dehumanized. You're the one who has been deprecated. You're the one who has been laid bare. And we are going to make an example of you being crucified because we're the ones in charge. And by making an example of you, we get to stay in charge. But this author says, no, 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 that's not what happened, actually. It's the other way around. This is brilliant. By Jesus going to the cross, so this author is suggesting, he's stripping them. He's stripping the rulers and the authorities of their power, and he's making a public example of them. He's completely flipped the script. In the crucifixion, in Jesus going to this particular kind of death, he is essentially exposing the powers, the rulers, the authorities for who they really are. This is an expose. This is, you're going to put me there, we're going to take all of this on, but I am going to expose you, and here it is, full frontal. You are completely laid out. And it's not me who's being exposed, it's you, the oppressor, the power, the ruler. There is some truth that we all are attempting to get to. But oftentimes that truth is hidden. It's hidden behind something. And sometimes that something is a system. Sometimes that's, that something is a way in which culture just naturally says, well, this is just how we do it. But part of what is going on in this program of Jesus is to peel back all of that and to say, no, no, no. You might think this is how it's supposed to work, but there's something else going on that is more the truth than what you see. I don't know if this illustration works, but I was reminded of this classic clip from many, many years ago that many of you might be reminded of. I think we could spend a lot of time. By the way, how many of you have never seen Wizard of Oz? Okay, that's good. <laughs> I was afraid there was going to be a huge generational divide here, so uh, I, was, I was a little nervous about that. So what's going on here? There is this force called the Wizard of Oz that everybody knows about, and this is just how it works, and this is how you have to placate that wizard. But there's something else going on that's going on behind the curtain. And ultimately what this person wants you to know is don't look behind the curtain. We have established this way of doing things because I don't want you to see what's really going on behind us. And this is what I think this author of Colossians is suggesting the death of Jesus is all about. 
The crucifixion is to say, I'm exposing you powers, you rulers, you authorities for everything that you are. Look at who you are right in his face. Throughout the time that we have been together, there are moments when the corruption and the pain and the suffering and the injustice in this world is just so hard to handle. And part of our biblical narrative is to describe to you, you know what? Up comes from this torturous, dysfunctional, putrid of a world, up comes something beautiful. There are moments when we need to peel back all of that to expose something beautiful. But then there are moments like this. When you might see a particular face and some people are suggesting to you, everything is okay, everything is good, everything is exactly how it should be. Don't disrupt the status quo. Don't disrupt the way that we've been doing it. Don't even try to, why can't we just go back to the way things were? But there are moments where you have to pull that back and you say, that's not the truth. That also needs to be exposed. And what needs to be exposed is that we're living in this broken world and you, rulers, powers, authorities, governments, empires, you think you're establishing justice. You are actually reaping more pain and more suffering on the world and I'm showing it to you in full force. Brian Zond in his book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, writes this about the crucifixion. The crucifixion of Good Friday isn't an economic transaction, which is sometimes how many Christians have approached this. It is the torture and murder of an innocent man. This isn't a business deal to balance the celestial books. It is a crime of cosmic proportions. And I think he's exactly correct. There is an exposure that what Rome is doing, what the people are doing, is a complete offense to the peace and the shalom and the image that God wants to put on the face of this planet. Let's go back to this verse. Remember, put away your sword. Uh, I can call on angels. This is how the scripture is going to be fulfilled. Later on in that passage, he says, at that hour, Jesus said to the crowds, have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? As though I were a criminal? Day after day, I sat in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. So, so now, you're going to treat me like a lesser human being? You're going you're to label me as a criminal right now in this hour, in this place? But all this had taken place so that the scriptures of the prophets may be fulfilled, which is a huge statement that requires a whole bunch more study of the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures. Then all the disciples deserted him and fled. My friends, I'm going to suggest to you that the crucifixion heading into that kind of humiliating death is a complete flip of the script. Whereas crucifixion is supposed to humiliate the person being crucified, this story suggests by Jesus going to the crucifixion and being humiliated in that way, he's actually completely upending it. You're being humiliated. The powers are being exposed. The way in which you think the world functions is not the way this is going to work. Here's a couple examples. Peter thought he was number one. But this moment exposes Peter for being a coward. It pulls back the truth, pulls back the veil to reveal the truth. He exposes Judas for missing the point. I'm going to betray Jesus so that we're going to be able to uprise against Rome. And Judas just doesn't get it. 
exposes Pilate for being a puppet. Pilate's supposed to be the one in charge, but the way the narrative goes, Pilate is just kind of a puppet of the people. And so it's a way of saying, he doesn't have any power in this. He thinks he's in charge. It exposes the religious for being corrupt. When all the religious powers, the religious establishment, that is, by the way, benefiting by co-opting themselves with the current government, they're being exposed for being corrupt. This is what happens when religious people co-opt themselves and their faith with the powers that exist. And the empire, Rome, is being exposed, not for being the peace of Rome, but for being evil. The exposure and humiliation of Jesus is ultimately an exposure of us, of our sin and our depravity. That is what this is. Why did Jesus have to die? He didn't. We chose to live by these systems. We chose to live by these hierarchical powers, by empire. We chose to do that. And as a result, I'm going to suggest to you that the way in which we now think about this crucifixion is to think about the implications for what our faith actually then means in this world. The entire narrative of the story is about how Jesus is a sinless one. He's the Lamb of God. He is innocent. He's done nothing wrong, both by Jewish standards and by Roman standards. And yet, he is being sent to being crucified. And that movement, that shift from innocence to criminal, due to absolutely nothing that he did, seems like a motif, seems like a theme throughout all of our humanity taking innocent people that have done nothing wrong and putting them on the crucifixion stake because we want to keep our power, because we want to keep things the way that they are. So I'm going to suggest to you one way in which we need to really seriously consider this today, that we have to pay attention. When innocent people are treated like criminals, when innocent people are humiliated and when innocent people are sacrificed at the throne of the empire, of the power and the government that happens to be. Because that's exactly the exposure that Jesus does on the cross. And when we live in a society or when we carry out programs or systems of injustice that take innocent people or people in a lower system within the world of whatever hierarchy, and we point to them and say, you're the problem. You're the criminal. You're the one that needs to be made an example of, and we're going to humiliate you. We're going to sacrifice you. Whenever that happens, we got to pay serious attention because we are no longer living in the way of Jesus. We are now basically being exposed just like Rome. We have become that. And every single one of these systems, government systems, the, all of the systems of gender hierarchy that exist, the racism that exists, the economics that exist, there are voices, and I know you have all heard these, where in every single one of these particular areas, victims of these systems will be blamed and crucified because we don't want to change the power. We don't want to change the dynamic. We don't want to change the way in which it has always been. And as soon as we start blaming those people for the way in which the world, for, for upending the world, 
just because we might happen to lose them, we've got to pay some serious attention. And I'm going to suggest to you that people who follow Jesus are deeply aware of this because this is exactly what happened. This is exactly the model that Jesus has. An innocent one, the Lamb of God, the sinless one, was exposed. And on the cross, he exposes everyone else for their corruption, for their power, for their empire. And if that's happening today, if if innocent people are being blamed and shunned and humiliated and caged and crucified, who have we become? This is that story for us. And here's the ultimate tragedy in my mind. Did this need to happen? And the answer is no. It doesn't need to happen. There are so many more beautiful ways, according to the way of Jesus, that we could establish justice and peace and beauty, equality, thriving, human flourishing, whatever you want to call it. And we chose not to. We chose to let the system just be what it is. But if we take this seriously, if we take the death of Jesus seriously, I'm going to propose to you that we pay deep attention to when we outsource our anger, our pain, our hierarchy, all of that to innocent people. And we crucify them instead of trying to create a more just and equal world. Does that make sense? God, I know that this is just a very light scratch on the surface of all the beauty. I look forward to more discussion over these next couple of weeks about what your sacrifice, your death means for us and how we live. But in this particular moment, I just simply want to pray for all in this world who are fleeing injustice and pain and war and corruption. And I pray for all those who wish to make those people victims and examples and And I pray that you would search our hearts deeply and that we would search our hearts deeply and that we would love deeply those who are being set upon our modern-day crosses so that we can just feel good about the establishment and the power that we hold. I pray for all those who are suffering, who feel excruciating pain because they are succumbing to these systems, But I ultimately pray for all of us who claim the name of Jesus, who want to follow in your way, that we will, through our work, through our life, through our discipleship of you, expose those powers for what they truly are and establish your kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. And I pray this in your name. Amen.